chestnuts. Useful opening. Um, it's what you are. 1 Corinthians 15, 37 says that the, uh, the relationship of our new body to our heavenly body is the relationship of a chestnut, a seed to what is to come. Look out the window, not now, but another time. You look out the window, you see trees. That is what we will be. Now, knowing what you will be affects what you do. If, if you think a chestnut is just a chestnut, then if you're stupid, you try and eat it. Those sorts of chestnuts aren't edible. Sweet chestnuts are. Eat those ones and you hospitalise yourself. But you might play conkers with it, or you might use it for some strangely twee sort of home decoration. Um, but if you know it grows into a tree, then you won't think it's stupid to bury it in the ground, which seems like a thorough waste unless it grows into a tree. But if you know it grows into a tree, then you'll bury it in the ground. What it will be affects what you do with it now. That's what we were looking at last session. But what about now? What can we expect now as we wait from life as a chestnut? Now, what should we expect from this life? We know what we will be, and it's glorious, but what about now? I've got to live in this life, on this earth, with this body for, well, hopefully, not quite as much left as some of you, but um, still got a good few number of decades left, I, I trust. So what should I expect from life? And how we understand what life will be like, what God tells us we should expect from our hearts, uh, from our bodies, affects how we live now. It affects how we relate to others. It affects how we use the resources we've got of time, of energy for people, of love, of money. All those things are affected by who I think I am and who I think you are. It affects the goals I have in my life and the value I place on different things and people. So we're going to turn to Colossians 3 to help us think about what we are now. And the first thing we see um, is, I am a new creation. I am a new creation. Uh, Colossians 3, 1 to 4 tells us that something utterly decisive has happened if we trust in Christ. Since then, you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things, for you died. And your life is now hidden with Christ. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. I think these verses say far more than most of us usually believe. When I ask you what happened when you put your trust in Christ, I was forgiven my sins. I was justified by God. It's amazing. I've been declared right with God, as if I'm innocent rather than guilty. I've been restored to a relationship with God. That's true. But the supernatural reality is much, much greater than that. When you put your trust in Christ, I became a new creation. The Holy Spirit brought me to brand new life. Verse 1, we have been, past tense, raised with Christ. I have already been raised with Christ, if I trust in him. Verse 3, we have died to our old life. My old life is already gone in Christ. Verse 3, our life now is hidden with Christ in God. I now live with Christ in heaven. All those things have now happened, are now true. If you trust in Christ, you are decisively, definitively different from what you once were. 2 Corinthians 5, 17 captures it in that glorious phrase. If anyone is in Christ, they're a new creation. The old is gone and the new has come. If anyone is in Christ, they are a new, not status, that's true, not relationship, that's true, but a new creation. 
you are not just forgiven new, forgiven you, you are made new. You've undergone a dramatic change. You're a new creature, owned and loved and restored by God your creator. And therefore the guilt and shame over the past and the fears that we have about the future, they do start to lose some of their hold on us when those truths actually get into our hearts. You are no longer defined by and governed by sin. Something dramatic has happened. You are a new creation in Christ. But secondly, you are being renewed. Verses 5 to 10. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived, but now you must also rid yourself of all things such as these, anger, rage, malice, slander, filthy language from your lips. Don't lie to each other, since you've taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge, in the image of its creator. Verse 10, we have put off the old self and we have, past tense, put on the new self. We have been made new, but also we are being renewed in the knowledge of the image of our creator. In other words, God's restoration project has begun, but it's not completed. If you're as sad as me, you may occasionally watch things like Grand Designs or a Great Restoration Project. The big issue there is always, can they afford to finish it? Um, these wonderful plans, and they always run out of money. That can't happen here. God has paid everything at the cross. But we are in the building phase, not the living and enjoying phase of the restoration project. The restoration of the image is not a nebulous idea either. You know, what, what does it mean that God is restoring us in his image? Do you remember in, in Romans 1 what happens? We turn away from God, our minds are darkened, and then what happens? The result is that pretty depressing list of sins uh, that characterise life. The, the sort of mess that ruins relationships and, and, and shows how disordered our loving and living is. Well then, of course, as we turn back to God, our minds are changed, we're renewed in knowledge of God, and our living changes. It's not a nebulous thing, having our image restored. Our living and our loving becomes ordered rather than disordered. So, immediately having said, you are new in Christ, 3, 1 to 4, verse 5, put to death, therefore. Put to death sin. Walk away from it. Put on the new self. God is at work in us now, restoring us and we are to live out that restoration and the thing with God is he's not like a makeup artist it's not like he's uh, plonking on the divine blusher and you know the and and covering it's not like foundation is being caked over our sinful bodies so that you know we look presentable to the camera but frankly what's going on underneath is is pretty miserable now God works the other opposite way around it starts with a new heart Ezekiel 36 and Jeremiah 31 talk about being renewed from the inside that's where God starts so he changes us from the inside and slowly the change seeps out through the outside slowly pruning and reshaping us weaning our hearts off destructive, depraved appetites and habits and turning our love and our focus away from me and back out to God and people. But it is a slow process and it's an inward start, which is why Christians can be such a miserable pain in the neck because you know God's ways are slow and sin is deep and God starts from the inside, not the outside and it takes a while before these things work out in our behaviour. 
But it's in our behaviour that they're seen. Colossians 3, 5 to 9 is all about how your behaviour changes as your image is being restored. Okay, so how does it happen? How does the transformation, the renewal, verse 10, come about? It happens, we become more like Christ, we become more fully human as we're renewed in the image and the knowledge and the image of our creator, verse 10. And you see the key to that in verses 1 to 3. Since then you've been raised with Christ, set your hearts on things above where Christ is. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. In other words, as we turn ourselves away from me and to Christ, the more that we spend time with him, the more like him we become. You see it with teenagers. You can tell which teenagers hang out with each other. Why? Because they're dressed the same. They express their individuality and their rebellion by looking exactly the same. And dressing the same, listening to the same music, getting the same haircut, the same tattoos and the same hair dye. And speaking the same weird language that nobody else understands. That's how you know which teenagers hang out together. You become like the people you hang out with at a most basic level. And if you hang out with Jesus, you become like Jesus. And if you don't, you don't. Pretty simple, really. You see that principle all through life. But you see it very clearly in the Bible. Set your hearts and minds on Christ and you start to be changed. Again, 2 Corinthians makes it explicit. 2 Corinthians 3.18. We all who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory. Don't worry, that's just referring back to Moses in, in Exodus. That's why the language is weird. But as we contemplate the Lord's glory, we are being transformed into his image with ever increasing glory, which comes from the Lord who is the spirit. We all, who with unveiled faces, contemplate, consider, dwell upon the Lord's glory, are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory. In other words, God is a bit like sunshine. There's a reason that most of us here, well, none of us have a suntan at the moment, at least not a natural one. Um, And the reason is, (laughs) the reason is, it's November. (laughs) It's November in Britain. Uh, and so um, if you have uh, pale skin, you won't reflect the sunshine in November because it doesn't last. The only way you, ha- you maintain a sunshine all year is by being in the sun all year. And the only way that you reflect the image of God or you grow into the image of Christ is by being in the presence of Christ. He is... Uh, he is like the sun's rays in that sense. We start to reflect, to, to look like we've been in the sun after a while. And we start to reflect, to look like we've been with the sun in a similar way. Uh, A.W. Tozer says, we become like what we worship, basically. We instinctively become like what we esteem most highly. The principle, the, the more I esteem something, the more I shape my life around it. And the more that you and I esteem, love, adore, venerate Jesus, the more that we spend time with him, in his word, praying to him, reflecting on him, discussing him, praising him, learning about him, the more that we start to bear his reflected glory, to become like him. And so Christians should be eternally tanned people in that sense. We are new creations if we trust in Christ. 
who are being renewed daily as we turn to Christ. That is what the life of a conqueror is. What does that mean? Um, implication. So, simul justus et peccator was a, the great truth, really, of uh, one of the great truths of the Re- Reformation. What it means is it's Latin for, at the same time, justified and a sinner. Justified, declared right with God, and yet a sinner. And um, the <laughs> theologian whose name I can never remember how to pronounce, Herkemar, Hukmar, whatever it is, Hukmar, uh, he says, we are decisively new, not entirely new. And that captures it exactly. We're decisively new, but we're not entirely new. So if I trust in Christ, I am a justified sinner, declared right by God the Father, born again by the Holy Spirit, and redeemed at great cost by the blood of the Son, the Lord Jesus. But I still live in an earthly body. And I still struggle with the fact that although my heart has been changed, it's not been completely changed. And therefore, my heart now is divided. I both love sin, and I love what is pure. I both love me, and I love others. I both want to please God, and I want to indulge wickedness. And therefore, what we need to do is to hold on to both Romans 6 and Romans 7. And I think this is a really, really important thing for us to get an understanding of life as conquers. There are three Ps to sin. There is a penalty to sin, there is a power to sin, and there is a presence to sin. And Romans addresses all three. Romans 3 to 5 declares the wonderful truth that Jesus has taken away the penalty for sin. So he's endured the punishment for sin on the cross, absorbing the Father's rightful wrath. So the penalty is totally gone. Romans 6 then says the power of sin has been broken because the Holy Spirit is stronger than sin and the Holy Spirit lives in us. And our lives are now governed by the Spirit, not by sin. So the power has been broken. But, Romans 7, the presence of sin still remains. So we still sin. The difference now is I don't have to. I still will, but I don't have to. Newton summarises it beautifully, as usual. Um, We often just take the last bit of this quotation, but the whole thing is just fantastic. John Newton. I am not what I ought to be. I am not what I want to be. I am not what I hope to be in another world. But still, I am not what once I used to be. And by the grace of God, I am what I am. Fabulous. I'm not what I ought to be. I'm not what I want to be. I'm not what I hope to be in another world, but still I am not what I once used to be. And by the grace of God, I am what I am. Three questions, really, as we, um, as we wrap up. What do I expect from myself? What should I expect from life as a conqueror? Expect change. The Holy Spirit is alive in you. In other words, the power of God through which creation happened, Psalm 33, 6, is alive in you. God's light is shining in darkness and God has given you a new heart. So expect God's power to be working itself out in real, practical, concrete ways in your life. But also expect frustrating struggle. Sin does not give up easily. The fiercest fighting on the Western Front of the Second World War was in the immediate aftermath of D-Day. Once Allied forces had invaded to liberate Europe, that's when the fiercest fighting actually took place. It takes brutal fighting to dislodge 
and to destroy sin. We spend so much of our lives reinforcing and digging deep concrete bunkers to protect our sin. We surround them with barbed wire and minefields and machine guns. And then we're surprised that we don't seem to be changing immediately. It takes painful fighting to dislodge those bunkers that we've built. To learn new habits, to unlearn ingrained patterns, to wheedle out stupid lies that we have taught ourselves to believe and believe and believe. Um, it's a Dave and Maggie Plant, you may know, in the, in the morning congregation, they've just adopted two little kids. And for the first six months, they basically went into lockdown. So they, they didn't really go out and they never left the kids because you can't just adopt kids who have had difficult, messy time up till now and suddenly expect them to, within a day, work out, oh, these are loving parents who are totally for me. And if they leave me in the Sunday school class, they'll come back and get me in and out. It just doesn't work like that. And so they, they have to invest an enormous amount of time teaching these kids new ways of understanding. You know, their life has dramatically been changed. They have been given a totally new life by being adopted by Dave and Maggie. But it will take them months, years, to really learn and to believe and to live out the confidence of we have parents who love us, who are for us, and who we can trust. And you and I need to just remember that, that we are decisively different. The power is there. Just as those kids now have everything they could need from wonderful parents like Dave and Maggie is there. But it'll take, a, it'll take time for them to believe it, to trust it, to learn it, to live it out. And it takes time for us to live out the change. It takes time for us to root out the sin. It takes time for us to stop going the way we always go, to stop looking for pleasure in the place we always look for it. And so in the meantime, I guess the big thing is don't act like temptation has no traction on you. Don't act like temptation has no traction. So was, um, when I was in um, Latin America for six months uh, after law school, there I was doing youth work and um, we, uh, we were doing some evangelistic initiatives with the, with the Lazar Church. And um, they said, look, uh, one of the places where all our friends go is this uh, horrible nightclub in the, in the sort of shantytown on the edge of it. And they said, we'd love to do some evangelism in the queues. It would be great to reach our friends there. I said, yeah, that sounds like a great idea. So we'd go out and we'd, you know, talk to the people in the queues, talking to them about Jesus while they stood around with nothing better to do as they waited to go into this club. The thing is, two of them, like, where, where did they? They'd got chatting and chatting with these people and having a really good conversation with them. And they carried on the conversation into the nightclub. And we found them about a day and a half later, thoroughly hungover and with no idea of what they'd done. Because... They thought, oh, we're now Christians. We can go back into places like that and we'll be fine. They just forgot, you know, temptation still is temptation. They'd forgotten that it still has attraction on them. doesn't matter how great your intentions are. You and I know full well that if I spend enough time in that place or indulging those thoughts or hanging around with those people at that time, then things will happen. Don't act like temptation has no traction. Flee from it. Don't play with it. Always approach life as if you're not quite as strong as you think you are. It's a great rule to get others to help you set boundaries with stuff. Because I always cut myself slack. Whereas other people uh, don't seem to think I'm quite as sensible 
strong and godly as I am. Which is very disappointing that they're so cynical about me, but actually it's quite useful sometimes. Um, Now look, the great mantra of our age is follow your heart. Uh, And if I'm honest, I find it a little bit depressing how often I hear people at church talking about that as in, in guidance, you know, the most important thing is you just got to follow your heart in this. Now, there is something healthy about it. There is something healthy about saying, look, take responsibility for your life. Um, do things because you want to and you really invest yourself in them and you believe in them. Don't just, you know, go through the motions. Don't let other people set your agenda. All that sort of There is something healthy about it. But at its heart, that view says something more. It says, I can be trusted to determine what is right and healthy. And if I follow my heart, I will end up doing what pleases God. That's what it really says when Christians say it. They're saying, look, you know what, if you just follow your heart, you'll end up doing what God would do if he spoke from the sky. I don't think that's right. Uh, So I read in Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 9, the heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? Read uh, what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 4 a couple of weeks ago. 1 Corinthians 4, 4, my conscience is clear, but that does not make me innocent. It's the Lord who judges me. Even if we're filled with and led by the Holy Spirit, even if we're as spiritually mature and as biblically saturated as the Apostle Paul, even then, we'd be fools to to trust our conscience implicitly. Even then, we'd be fools to expect our hearts to always lead us in righteous paths and ways that please God. Don't be cynical, but do be realistic. That's a hard thing to get right in balance. Expect that even now my heart will want to do things that serve me and go against God's ways. Expect that even now my heart will look at things that are unhealthy and think that they are sweet treats. Expect that even now things that are damaging for me will not look that way to me. And therefore trust this, trust God's word rather than my inward voice. So what do I expect from myself? What do I expect from others? Now democracy is a good system basically because it spreads the power out so no one wicked person gets too much power in their grubby little midst. That's basically why it's good. It stops one person getting too much power. Because humans, the way we are, um, the sinful urge is I want to reach up and grab power. And the more power I get, tends to be the worse I end up becoming. That's why we have democracy politically. Um, but I'm not here to talk about politics so much. But don't build too much hope on human leaders. Uh, not just political leaders, but church leaders. So it was, uh, it was very sad a, a couple of years or a year back. I know a number will have read about uh, Mark Driscoll, the, the minister at, um, over in Seattle. There is no denying the good he did. And I don't really want to get into everything. Um, he did a lot of good. But the truth is, there was too much power in his hands. He had this huge organisation and basically, it was all down to him. And the sad thing is that so often, if you put too much power in the hands of a human, it never seems to end well. The really sad thing is how many people just were put off Christianity or drifted away from church after his fall. People sometimes say, I could never come to church, there are too many hypocrites there, to which the correct answer is, there is always room for one more. Um, Because church is full of hypocrites. You are a hypocrite, and so are you, so are you, so are you, so are you. Everybody I can see in this room, if you're a Christian, you're a hypocrite. 
because, and I'm the biggest hypocrite of all because I speak the most in church, and God's word is clear, so I try to speak it clearly, but my life does not match God's word. Now, we should all be trying to close the gap between the truth we know about God and the life we live, but there will always be a gap, and we should expect that. So don't expect more from others than you see in yourself. We all know there's a gap between what I should be and what I am. Don't then expect in church everybody to be perfect and get in a huff and say, I'm never coming back to this church because they just don't behave like Christians. By what we mean is they're not better than I am. Um, Expect others to be as flawed and struggling as we are. On the other hand, do pray that as a church we would evidence God's supernatural power. Do pray that it would be impossible to explain the way we love each other in a human sense, that the only possible explanation for our church would be the Holy Spirit. Pray that that would be true. So both from myself and from others, um, expect to see a bit of mess. Expect to see the transforming power of the Spirit and the indwelling, ongoing corruption of sin. Expect both. But lastly, though, which way am I facing? Uh, do you remember the, um, the ad that got in so much trouble? The be- are you, is your beach body ready? Are you beach body ready? A huge, you know, enormous complaints on the underground. I don't really care about your beach body, but is your, are you getting heavenly body ready? Are you getting heavenly body ready? Uh, Philippians 3 tells us that we're given our heavenly body, so, which is rather nice. It'd be nice if that happened at the beach as well. Um, we're told our citizenship is in heaven and we eagerly await a saviour from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so they'll be like his glorious body. We get a heavenly beach body just given to us. Nice. But the Bible does indicate that we do impact now what that body will be like. Um, and I think in terms of crowns and scars, so 1 Thessalonians uh, 2, 19 to 20, Paul says, What is our hope, our joy, or the crown in which we will glory in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ when he comes? Is it not you? You are our glory and our joy. So Paul's crown will be like an enormous thing with a whole load of action men and Barbie dolls. I have no idea what the the image is. But it says, somehow, the bright shining jewels in our heavenly crown will be the people that we've shared the gospel with and discipled. Quite physically, how that will translate, leave that to God to work out. But our crowns in which we will glory, whatever that literally means, will be the people that we've loved and served here. And so we do have an impact on on, the, on our body, our appearance in heaven. Secondly, our scars. It's interesting in John 20, the resurrection perfect body of Jesus has holes in the hand that Thomas can shove his fingers through and a hole in his side that he can shove his hand into. I wonder if we won't bear our suffering, our scars for Jesus too. They're not that you know, there'll be some Christians wandering around heaven with a missing limb or something. But I, I wonder whether there'll be some way in which the things we've suffered for Jesus will be reflected and will be glorious just as his scars are glorious. You know, our, our society, our televisions are full of um, airbrushed perfection and vulgar bling. But last week, uh, what looked glorious was very different. It wasn't um, massive pink diamonds on, on you know, fake tanned fingers. It was polished medals on old men's and old women's chests who'd fought in the war and in fact to have an eye patch and a scar down your cheek and medals on your chest looked good and glorious because 
You knew what it had cost and you knew why they'd done it. We will one day be given a new body, but how we live now does affect what we will be then. So don't look inwards. Don't look worldwards. I've got to be me. I've got to be true to myself. I've got to be like them. Look Christwards. Follow his example. Look to the architect's model of what one day we will be. King Lear asked, who is it who can tell me who I am? And there are lots of voices that shout answers to those questions. But to put it another way, we're in a battle of belief. And our enemy is the father of lies, 1 Peter 5. And we are bombarded daily by lies that I cook up in my heart and lies that I hear out in the world. And our weapon is truth. We need to speak truth, not just to ourselves, but about ourselves to ourselves. God's truth. What are you feeding on? What, what, what is the loop play about you in your mind? Is it true? What informs how you think about yourself? Speak truth about yourself to yourself and about others to them too. Encourage, build up, correct, admonish one another with God's truth. Uh, we are getting close to Christmas. As a small child, we're almost at that very, very frustrating time of year when the presents are wrapped in under the tree. And it's just the most annoying time because they're right there and yet you can't touch them yet. You can pick them up and shake them, but you have to put them back. It is hugely frustrating, but it's also very exciting because you know the presents have been bought. You've just got to hold on for Christmas Day. And Christmas Day is coming for us. Uh, Very soon... The sun will return and he will peel off these ageing, fading, wrapping papers of bodies that we have. And one day soon our resurrection glory will be revealed. And we will be like him, for we will see him as he is. Our Father God, we pray as we live in the overlap of the ages. We pray as we live now that you would help us to rejoice that we are free from the penalty and power of sin. And we pray that we would fight hard against the presence of sin. Father, we thank you that we have been made new and we are being renewed. And we pray that you would help us to turn to Christ, that we might reflect his glory and we might live out our calling as we wait for our transformation. Amen.